2 Corinthians 13, one of those passages, I was talking to my wife this week about the sermon. She said, oh, this is like the dream counselor passage to preach. She's right. And as a guy who, who loves things like counseling, discipleship, I am eager for this text. It's a, it's a great text. It's, it's, it's also in some ways a difficult text. Um, Paul, not rambling toward the end of 2 Corinthians, but kind of chasing after it pretty quickly. Maybe I should present it to you this way. Uh, before we read the passage, there's some things you simply should not do untested. Uh, you should not jump or dive into dark water without testing the depth. Uh, you should not handle a handgun without testing if it's loaded or not. Uh, I've had friends, I, I love guns and handguns, and over the years I've, I've had uncles, cousins, other friends hand me a pistol, and literally the first thing I do is drop the slide, drop the magazine out of it and pull the slide back to check if it's loaded. I don't care if they say it's unloaded. That's the first thing I do every single time. You treat every gun like it's loaded uh, until you've tested it completely and thoroughly. There's some things you don't do untested. You don't make a complex meal for your mother-in-law without having tested that recipe first. There's just things you don't do untested. And what Paul is going to tell us is the other thing you don't do untested is you don't go through life without spiritual self-examination. You don't go through life without testing your faith. It's more foolish than handling a gun without testing. It's more foolish than diving into dark water without testing its depth. It's more foolish than that first complex dinner for your mother-in-law without testing the recipe. Now, I know there's mother-in-laws in here that say, I would never judge. Okay, we know that. We're not, it's not a shot at you. We love you, right? But there's things you should not do untested. Paul writes to the Corinthians this way. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Testing our faith. I was having a meal with a friend this week and we were talking about wanting our desires even for our children's faith we we both would want our children to have an obvious faith that it would be just evident to everyone around them to their own hearts and to others we would want our children to have a genuine faith and so it's not just something they say but it's something that they hold dear they believe it's the bedrock of their existence we would want our children to have a strong faith we want our, our children to have a pure faith and it's interesting is if you were to ask well how does that happen how do people whether it's your children a spouse a friend a co-worker someone you care about passionately spiritually how is it that a person has a strong faith a pure faith a genuine faith an obvious faith the bible gives us a one word answer trials he tells us the trials uniquely are like sticking gold in a furnace it purifies it it reveals what's true 
and what's not true. Jesus even went after it in the parable of the four soils. You might remember as the soil, as the seed is cast upon the soils, there is one particular kind of soil that as the, as the sun rises up and as it begins to burn away, and these are the trials, the influence of the world, it reveals that it's not true. Trials reveal whether faith is real. Trial like gold refined in a furnace purifies it. But trials like a hot fire, you take steel and maybe you fold it on itself again and again and again, maybe making Damascus kind of steel and you bend it together in a molecular level through the heat and then quenching, it strengthens it. How do you have a genuine, pure, obvious strength in faith? The Bible says trials. So to hear, hear me right now, when I'm praying and wanting my children or people I love, uh, friends, community members to have a stronger, uh, a more vibrant, a more obvious, a purer faith, I know this, God's solution to that is to bring difficult things into their life. Trials. One of the worst things I can do then is try to prevent any trials from their life. One of the worst things I can do is to make everything smooth. That doesn't mean I need to bring trials. God will handle that. But to realize the truth that as we walk through the difficulties of the life, the life, the painful things of this life, it's what God uses. Paul is using this word for testing. It's the same word that James will use to talk about the testing of your faith. Paul uses it five times in three verses. The word specifically means to test expecting a positive outcome or a good outcome. Now, we've all taken tests before where it's, it's a mystery how we're going to get what the grade we're going to get back, right? We've taken other tests where we feel well prepared and we think we're going to do well. And the test is simply going to reveal what's already there. The uh, Bible talks about Jesus, obedience, being tested or revealed. It just revealed what was already there. And so Paul's telling the Corinthians, I want you to test your faith. And this is the dominant theme of these verses. And so to help us think through it, I, I retitled it, recast it simply this way, spiritual self-examination. So you can think of a test as kind of a personalized test you're taking, an exam you're taking, a consideration of your own heart. Now, uh, many of us are, you know the word well enough to know the moment I say that, a consideration of your own heart, that you and I are up against it because Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. How can we know them? But most of us stop there in Jeremiah 17. The passage goes on and God says, I, the Lord, reveal it. Guess how he reveals it? Hard times and difficult things. And so we're talking about dealing with our own hearts and spiritual self-examination. I guess my heart would be this way. If the Bible tells me that the one word answer to a pure faith, an obvious faith, a strengthening faith is trials, I don't want to wait. And what Paul is advocating for here in this text is you don't have to wait just till trials come to start wrestling through the genuine, strong, strengthening, purifying nature of your faith. You don't have to wait till then. In fact, the normal, regular practice of every believer should be spiritual self-examination. So spiritual self-examination is the healthy and normal practice for all believers. Now, if we were to be preaching this sermon about 400 years ago, all the Puritans, they wouldn't shout amen. They'd just kind of give a holy murmur. Um, they got this. They understood this concept. And it's largely been lost over the last several hundred years. In fact, I, I think maybe you and I are guilty of it at times. We've talked to folks and We've asked them about their faith, are they saved, are they a believer, and what they'll tell us is about how they prayed a prayer, and 
They ask Jesus in their heart, and they've been in church their whole life. In other words, the way we think about self-examination is evidence sometimes the way we talk about examination of other people's faith. And we stop very shallow, and we actually don't even, aren't even mirroring the biblical record of what real self-examination looks like. And so how do we think through this with Paul? How do we work through it? Well, there are two different things that are happening in this text, and it's important for us to understand that. First of all, there's this testing that Paul's talking about being applied to his own life. And this is all about his relationship with the Corinthians. And then there's the actual testing that he's advocating for the Corinthians to do. Um, the Corinthians, Paul wants them to stop questioning, what about Paul? Uh, is Christ in you? Verse 3. And start asking about their own hearts. But at the same time, Paul's talking about relationally with them because remember, they're asking that question, is Christ in you? Because they're testing his Paul ruling apostle. Both those things are happening in this text the impact of Paul in their life, and the reality of the faith in themselves. And so we want to start with Paul because he'll ultimately lead us to understand how to do self-examination. There's two things that should be tested about someone who influences. Paul says, you're going to ask me about being a good apostle. You're going to question or test me about being a good apostle. The first real test to be a good apostle is that I've influenced you towards Jesus Christ. You see it in verse 6. This failure would be in response to that reality. Let me get my Bible here so I can read that one with you. Back in verse 6, this is what Paul says. He, he says, that, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. What test would Paul have failed? You back up to verse 5. He says this, do you not realize this about, about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? What Paul is saying is this, as an apostle he came to gather together any believers in an area and to evangelize the lost, then put them all together in a church, train elders, establish the church, and then go on and do it somewhere else. And so what Paul is saying is if you go through spiritual self-examination and you discover that you're not believers at all, then I failed as an apostle because my job as an apostle was to influence you toward being like Jesus Christ. What is the job of every Christian friend, every Christian parent, every Christian spouse? It is to influence other people toward Jesus. Your marriages, your friendships, and your parenting are not about just making memories or having fun together. It's not about, I just like doing life with you. It's about my, I'm on mission to help push you to be like Jesus. And I can have all the memories in the world. I can have all the fun times in the world. We can have all the laughter, all the joy, all the delight, go through all the trials of life together. But if I'm not influencing you towards Jesus, then I'm failing. And that's what Paul's saying. If you go down through your tests and you don't know Christ, then I have failed as an apostle. Now, obviously, the bigger deal would be that they don't know Jesus at all. But Paul's answering their question. Is Christ in you? Well, if you test yourself and Jesus isn't in you, then I failed as apostle. As we work through our text this morning, you're going to see that Paul will call all believers to this self-examination, and it should be normal. What's unique here in this text, in the context of Corinthians, is that it's happening as they're questioning him. Now, we don't have any one-to-one -one ratio for that. Not really. Uh, the closest you could get is in relating to elders or pastors. It's the closest, and it's broken because we're not apostles, for sure. Apostles don't exist today. 
But Ephesians chapter 4 makes it very, very clear that the job of ministers of the gospel is to do what? To train you to do the work of the ministry. In other words, we would say this. If you live and exist in this church and you are not growing to be like Jesus, there would be a question mark about the effectiveness, the efficacy of your pastors. It just would be. Now, we all know the reality at the end of the day. I could look at Darren, and, and so we'll pick on Darren because he's gone. He can't be here to defend himself, right? And so I could look at Darren, and Darren is my pastor. And, and, and so Darren is shepherding me. And I know the reality is Darren could speak truth into my life. He could open the text of Scripture. He could rebuke. He could confront. He could encourage. He could admonish. He could exhort. And I could resist all of it. And at the end of the day, that's a me problem, not a him problem. But it is right to ask the question, is he training me to be more like jesus to do the work of the ministry if the answer to that is no if all it is is feel good messages if all it is is headlines if all this is political spin if all of it is 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 such gospel on the basis of level that all you ever hear is repent and believe which you all must do to be saved but that's all you hear and you're not pushed you're not served then at the end of the day on some level he'll give an account to god and he's not doing it well now i can use him as an example because he pastors really well and that's not true. But that's some of the dynamic that we need to recognize that the Corinthians are looking at Paul and they're throwing rocks at Paul and they're saying, are you even an apostle? And Paul is saying, well, I brought the gospel to you. If you don't know Jesus, then I'm a terrible apostle. But we know the biggest deal would be what? That they don't know Jesus. That's the biggest issue. You know, that starts to give us insight into maybe why we don't do self-examination so good. <laughs> because we're too busy looking at everybody else rather than our own hearts. We're too busy blame-shifting rather than owning our own struggles. And so there should be an influence towards Christ with an influencer, but then there must also be influence toward repentance. The second test of Paul's an apostle will be if they're growing and repentant. Now, we start at salvation. Uh, you recognize that you're a sinner. You recognize that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. You recognize that you're on your way to an eternal hell. And so you turn from your sin, repent. You put your faith in Christ alone. You're saved. It doesn't stop there. Now there's sanctification. This lifelong process of gradually, slowly, it feels like agonizingly slowly. You're running a marathon up a muddy hill to become more and more like Jesus until we get to glorification in heaven when we are made fully like him, sinless. This process of sanctification should be the normative, and it, frankly, it must be the normal pattern for every single believer. You show me someone who says I'm saved, but God's not changing me, I'm looking at someone who's actually not saved at all. Agonizingly slow. Lifelong process. But you zoom out on your life and my life, you should see someone who is slowly and over zoom out span consistently becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. This is what he's talking about when he talks about the test in verse 7. We pray to God that you may not do wrong. In other words, that you'll repent from what you've been doing. We've worked all, all the way through 2 Corinthians to get to this point. So we know there's a whole grocery list of problems. We pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. What, what is Paul saying here? Well, Paul's using a number of negatives and positives, and it's harder to see. So maybe if I show it to you this way and we work through it. 
I think maybe the visual will help. I'm a visual kind of guy, so maybe it'll help you. So in verse 5, this is what you have. I pray that you pass the test of being in the faith that would be demonstrated by repentance and growth. How do you know that a person has been saved? Because they say they've been saved? Mm, rough. No, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said there will be many in that day that say, Lord, Lord, and they're lost. It's not just that you said you've been saved. Yes, you must confess with your mouth. You must believe in your heart. Absolutely. And yet by your fruits, you will be known. And so he's saying is the test of the Corinthian heart and life would be repentance and growth. And Paul's just unpacked with two different letters that we've studied through a number of areas that the Corinthians need to repent and grow. Verse 6 then, I hope that you find that we have not failed the test. That's what would make Paul pass the test of being a true apostle. He has brought the gospel. How would the Corinthians have even known to repent and believe? Because Paul the apostle came. He now switches to a different test. You see, remember the problem the Corinthians had with Paul as the apostle was not just did he bring us the true gospel, but the other problem was where's his authority? They have all these super apostles in Corinth. Remember these guys that they're even smacking people around. They're demanding money from them. They exercise power and authority the way the lost people do. And Paul doesn't function that way at all. Paul comes and he's meek and he's kind and he rebukes directly and he confronts boldly. And yet he's in tears and he appears weak to them. At one point when he first went to Corinth, he's so scared that he's going to die, that he's ready to leave. But God has to give him a vision to say, no, stay. I'm not going to let him kill you. That's Paul. And they're like, Paul just doesn't seem to match. These super apostles, they're like the nation of Israel when they wanted a king. And so they go find the tallest, strongest, best looking guy they could find, Saul. And we all know how that played out because man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And so when they look at Paul and they look on the outside, they don't see a lot to be impressed by. He's not even the best preacher because since him, they've been exposed to guys like Apollos. And Peter rolled through town. They've got some other people that even heard Jesus at some point. And so the question is, yeah, Paul, where's your authority? And so this is the way it's working. Paul's saying, I prove that I'm an apostle if you know the gospel because I brought it to you. And I would also prove that I'm an apostle if when I come this next time, you haven't repented. Because then you're going to see some authority. Maybe this phrase has been uttered in your home. You wait till your father gets home. I heard that phrase growing up. Sent a shiver down my spine. Not because my dad was some abusive maniac, but because he was a good dad who would wield his authority. And wielding his authority involved a stitched belt purchased in Tijuana. And so when authority comes, authority brings discipline, doesn't it? You don't discipline somebody else's kid. You don't want somebody else disciplining your kid. God tells us in Hebrews, one of the ways that we know know his sons and daughters is what? He disciplines us and chastens us. He deals with us rightly. And Paul is saying, if I come and you're unrepentant, then you'll see the authority that will prove that I'm an apostle to you. Verse 7 then, your passing the test will remove the opportunity for Paul to prove his authority through discipline. The problem is, Paul writes this letter, he's he's already sent Titus once. Uh, Somebody else is carrying this letter to him to them well what if they repent what if suddenly they get this letter and they repent and one of the evidences would be going back to taking up this offering for these uh the christians in jerusalem and maybe they start kicking the super apostles out and maybe they restore the one man who'd been under church discipline and there's others that they discipline for unrepentance and paul says if i show up then paul doesn't have to exercise any authority because they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and if they do that they will remove from paul the opportunity to prove that he has the authority of an apostle to discipline them. And so he'll continue to look like 
He's failing the test of a true apostle. All of this boils down very simply to this. Paul the apostle was called to proclaim the gospel and lead people in sanctification. That's what he's being called to do. And all these tests around that idea. Am I doing those two things? And like I said a moment ago, none of us are apostles. Apostles don't exist today. But the call to us to evangelize the lost and influence people towards repentance and growth is the same. Not in an apostolic authoritarian way, but in Hebrews chapter 3, we're told to confront one another daily lest you be hardened through the deceptiveness of sin. Later in Hebrews, we're told to provoke one another to love and good works. We're told to do acts of ministry as we're trained to do them in Ephesians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 6, we're, to go, we're called into one another's lives who are overburdened by sin to help them. Any of you that are spiritual, what does it mean to be spiritual? Very simply, you're walking in the Spirit, you're loving God and others more than yourself. It doesn't require seminary education. It simply requires that you know Jesus and you love them. If we were to test your influence... If we were to take your influence and pour it through a strainer, what would drop out? Would it flow out people that you are pushing to be like Christ? People that you are sharing the gospel with? All of this, all of this is for Paul to communicate. This is not about me, but it's about them. Verse 8, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We're glad when we're weak and you're strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Paul's okay if he never gets to prove his apostolic authority through discipline. I'd be fine with that because I just want the truth. And if the truth is that you've repented and you've seen it and I've never had to show up and start rebuking people, I'm thrilled with that. For this reason, I write these things. While I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. I think that's a fascinating phrase. Paul has already written to the Corinthians that when they take communion, they take it wrongly, and for that reason, many are sick, and some have even died. It makes you wonder if Paul is thinking of that couple famously who lied to Peter, and God strikes them dead. Paul has no idea, I don't think, ultimately, how God would wield his power through Paul as the apostle if they're unrepentant. But it's not what he desires. Not everyone in this room is a parent, but many of us are. And if you're a parent, I know you've been brought to the brink of you have to discipline your child, and you just really don't want to. You're just deep down, all you want them to do is to obey, right? That's all you want. And Paul is saying, I don't want to have to come wield authority that way. What if we were to test our influence? What are some questions you and I should even ask out of self-examination? Do you speak words of life that draw other people to Christ? We saw even last week, your words can be words of death or they can be words of life. Do you speak to and about life and others in a way that builds people up or in a way that tears them down? Do you confront sin in a way that leads other people to repentance? You know, you can talk about sin, someone else's sin, in a way that does not lead them to repentance. Listen, I know that you've been giving in a lot here to the fear of man, but we all struggle with that. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. There's no need for repentance there. 
Contrast that with looking at someone, and I know I'm shortening a, a, an hour-long conversation in a few sentences, but hey, dear brother, dear sister, it just, I can tell you've been struggling with fear of man. I know the wicked bondage that that is. Psalms and Proverbs talks about that literally being like someone who's in chains in a prison dungeon. I want to come along beside you and help you grow and change. I wrestle in these areas as well. Can we go to Christ, confess the sin, and start to grow? Those are radically different. I know you struggle with bitterness. I'm praying you start forgiving. It's radically different. I know you're wrestling with being bitter and harboring hurt towards this person. And I just want to remind you, hurt people hurt people and no sin has been done against you that you have not done far worse against Jesus. How can I help encourage you to forgive? These are radically different kinds of conversations. Do you speak words of life? Do you confront sin in a way that leads people to repentance? Do you use the weak areas of your life so that others might see the strength of Christ? That's what Paul's doing. Do you pray for the repentance of others? Do you enter the sin struggles of others to help them bear the load? Or are you satisfied just pointing out where they're failing? Do you examine yourself in a way that's an example and an encouragement to the growth of others? Paul is. Paul is clearly thinking about write tests in his own conscience. Even earlier in Corinthians, he said, my own conscience is clean. It doesn't wage against me, but God will ultimately be the one who judges me. Paul is clearly doing self-examination because spiritual self-examination is the healthy and normal practice for all believers. What does it look like then? That's the first part of this text about Paul as an apostle. And so we think of it as Paul as an influencer and us as influencers. But what about our own spiritual self-examination? Well, I think we can unpack it in a couple ways. First of all, we can talk about lies. Lies that maybe prevent us from doing spiritual self-examination the way we think about it. What specifically should the Corinthians line their lives up against to see if they are in the faith? That's the language that he uses. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So you should be thinking, well, what should they actually be thinking? Well, I want to point out it's far more than simply asking, do they believe in Jesus? Have they repented, confessed, and been baptized? I think a lot of Christians stop there in their self-examination, and they think texts like this, have, texts like this actually have little to do with them. As though, while we would deny the fact that people believe salvation is just fire insurance, I've prayed a prayer, I've signed a card, I've read a date in my Bible, I'm saved, I'm good, let me go do whatever I want to do. And we would argue against that, and we would say, no, that's a heresy, or that's, that's at, at minimum, twisted theology. Um, it's absolutely dangerous. It's wrong-headed, because to be saved is to be embarking on a sanctification journey. And yet, when we talk about spiritual self-examination, I think a lot of Christians tune sermons out like this and texts out like this by simply stopping and saying, well, I know if I, I have a confidence if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. What if I ask it this way? When Jesus says in John chapter 15 that any branch that does not bear fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire, what's the fruit he's talking about? I mean, don't you think that'd be really important to know? What test should we take? What quiz should we look at? What if I were to quiz you this way? What text would point you to see what things a Christian should test? How, do, you even, do you know the Bible? And I don't mean this meanly, but do you know the Bible? If we were taking a paper test, and I almost printed off half sheets for you to do it. What text would you go to? This is what 
I should be lining my life up against to see, is it really there? What specifically is the fruit Jesus references in John 15? What are some specific fruits you should know and look for? And how are they defined? How many fruits are there? What are some negative fruits you should be looking to check for to make sure their presence is not in you? You know, I don't know many people who like to take tests and quizzes. There are some of us. I am an oddity, particularly personality tests. I've probably taken 50, if not 100 of them in my life. I love them. They all come back the same, but I still take them. I like tests and quizzes in school, made me feel good about myself, usually, not always. But most people don't like tests and quizzes, and frankly, they're tests and quizzes I don't like. Um, I didn't like my driving test. I failed it twice. Me and parallel parking did not agree. That's why it was ironic that the second job I had was driving a 24-foot rider truck, rental truck, into downtown D.C. And guess where I had, how I usually had to park it? Parallel. I think God was laughing at that one. But most people don't like to take tests and quizzes. They don't like to be examined. Certainly not in church, right? Like, can you imagine coming to Sunday school and a Sunday school teacher start giving you tests and quizzes? Not the fun kind to answer these questions and get candy. We all like those, but, but like real tests and maybe even posted grades. We'd be like, well, I don't want that in church. Most people don't like tests and quizzes, specifically when we're thinking in church context or spiritual dynamic. But can I just tell you that researchers have discovered the astounding power of quizzes and tests? They took an eighth grade class in Missouri. It was a social studies class, and they split the, class, the classes into three groups. Group number one, this is what they did. They gave them a quiz, kind of a pretest, before they taught the material. Then, as they were teaching the material along the way, the teacher would give them a quiz at the start of the class regularly over the material that had been taught the day before. And then, before the midterm and then the final exam, they'd give them another quiz. None of the quizzes were graded. They all took up class time. There was no additional homework, and for most of them, the teacher would leave the room while they, took, while they gave the quizzes. So in other words, kids could have even cheated giving each other the answers. Group number two. Group number two, they gave extra study time, extra homework, reread the material. I taught this material in class. Go home, reread it. Take this many much time, study it. Do that, invest this way. Really, frankly, the way mo probably most of us made our way through school studying, take notes, read your notes, get ready. That's what you try to do. Group three, they just taught the class as normal. Here's what they discovered. Group number one with the quizzes and tests, though they were not graded, though it took extra time away from class, though they could have even cheated as they're getting answers from each other, they all performed at least one full grade higher than the other two groups. Rereading material that you've already been taught this is, oh, I'm helping people here. People are going to get mad. Rereading material that you've already been taught has been scientifically proven to do you no help in actually learning the material. You could go home and reread it for four hours and you will not necessarily score higher. They repeated the test, the next, that same dynamic, that same research. The very next year, they did it with an eighth grade science class. The results were even dram more dramatic. The average test score, final exam, score for the kids who were given routine quizzes. The other two groups scored about a 72. The kids were given the quizzes with no additional information, no additional homework, taking time out of class to take quizzes, scored in the 90s. On top of that, they then quizzed the kids at six months, seven months, eight months, and on out. And the kids that had taken the quizzes retained the information up to eight months, where the other kids, it was gone within a month. Why? 
God has wired our brains in such a way, listen to me now, because we're going to apply this spiritually, he's wired our brains in such a way that it being demanded of us to know answers kicks in a part of every person's memory ability to retain information. There are things you need desperately to know as you walk through life as a believer, and one of them is how to do self-examination, to take tests. So what do we do with all this scientific proof about the power of quizzes and tests? But we all are wired in a way that we don't like quizzes and tests, especially about spiritual things. I think we have to humble ourselves before a text like this and ask, and I'm going to ask you disappointedly, how serious are you about becoming a mature Christian? Are you really passionate about growing? Do you really find yourself on mission to be more like Jesus, then I'm going to tell you this, then you must, you must start self-examination. You must start quizzing your own life and heart. What, are you, what do you do if you're in a class and you've got a teacher, maybe they haven't read small teaching by James Long or read these Harvard Business Review articles about memory devices? What do you do? Guess what? You create your own quizzes and tests. You self-quiz, you self-test, and you'll even do better. So even if you don't have a parent, a discipler, a teacher, a pastor who is walking you through this, I'm calling you to do what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do, and that is to self-examine. But there's problems because there's lies that we believe. There's two lies we believe about self-examination. First of all, we believe that it's opposed to assurance of salvation. Why would I self-examine? You see, because people like us, and we believe this, we believe that once you're saved, you're saved. You're in. You don't lose it. You can't lose it. So why should I examine to test if I'm in the faith when I already know I'm in the faith? Steve, this is crazy. The only people who do this are Arminians who believe you can lose your salvation. That's not us. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is not an assault against the assurance of salvation. Every true believer will be changing and growing. So if you're testing your faith, and frankly, there's not change in growth over time, there really is a legitimate question whether or not that person is a believer. Your walk should be so loud that it would drown out what you were saying. This testing that Paul is advocating for is a test of obedience that follows salvation. I think lie number two, that we are opposed to this, is because we tend to think this is for weak and immature people. The Corinthians are a hot mess. I mean, they got problems like nobody's business. They got, I mean, these are the kind of problems that, like, you don't ever want to go to that church. I do find it interesting, though, ironic, because Paul never advocates leave that church. But this is not the kind of church we want to be in. Rich people getting drunk at communion. That seems bad, right? I mean, imagine that. That's just crazy. This is not a test just for immature or weak believers. Peter puts it this way, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will not, you will never fail. It's interesting. When I read that passage, do you know the qualities that, Paul's talking, that Peter's talking about? If you practice these qualities, I just, I just, I'm, I'm setting a bar here, I, and I know I am, and I, and I know it's, it's high, And I know it's high because I'm 47, I've spent my whole life in church, and I've heard very few others call this bar. I've had people do this in my life, and it's so helpful to me. But here's, do you know the qualities Peter's talking about? 
If you don't, how can you test what you don't know? How can you examine what's in your heart if you don't even know what Peter's referencing? We can't, can we? Why do you even give pre-tests or pre-quizzes? Because we all have what's called confirmation bias, and we believe what we already believe, and we look for evidence to back it up, and we tend to not know what we don't know. And the power of a test or a quiz before you've ever taught the information is to soften your heart and tenderize you, make you ready to learn, because suddenly you realize, ah, I don't know what that is. So I have a gap in my knowledge, and I need more information. Self-examination spiritually is not for the weak and the mature. It's actually, it's actually for the mature and the growing believer. And then I think there's a warped focus in spiritual self-examination. Why? I think it's another reason why believers, when we do it, we don't do it well. Because we twist the way we put on weird lenses, funhouse lenses, when we are trying to see something. I was driving back the other day, and I put on my sunglasses, and there was a thumbprint like right in the middle of my, of my lens. I couldn't see. And I think lots of times when we go to do spiritual self-examination, we do it in a warped way and we don't really understand what we're supposed to be doing. I think there's two lenses for that. I think, first of all, we think that spiritual self-examination is about all you know. Now, I just said you have to know what you're testing on, and that's true. But it's not ultimately just based about what you know. This is why I wrote, Paul says to the Corinthians, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything Part of the deceiving nature of spiritual self-examination is operating as though knowing is the same as doing. I like how one commentator put it. I quote from them. True self-examination is not merely taking one's spiritual pulse beat on a regular basis, but rather submitting one's thoughts, attitudes, and actions to the will of God and the mind of Christ revealed in Holy Scripture. The key word there is submission. The Corinthians thought knowledge, gifts, even wealth were good indicators of their faith. Because I'm wealthy, God is blessing me. He's clearly happy with me. Because of all these things that I know, clearly God is pleased with me. Look at what, he, what, I, what he's taught me. Because of all the things I can do, my gifts that he's given me, look at all the one. Clearly God is approving of me and I'm good. I, I'm great. I, I, I'm in and I'm growing because of my spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were deceived about all of that because they think knowing is the same as doing. Throughout the Corinthian letters, Paul has argued for a genuine faith. But the genuine faith that it comes out in things like sexual purity in 1 Corinthians 6. The willingness to discipline the unrepentant in 1 Corinthians 7. The fleeing from idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10. The loving of others in 1 Corinthians 13. The using of their gifts for God and others in 1 Corinthians 14. The restoration of the repentant in 2 Corinthians 3. Just to name a few. It isn't what we know, it's what we do with what we know. James goes after the same thing, doesn't he? You look into a mirror and you walk away unchanged. And so I think one of the warped lenses of why we don't do self-examination well is we think it's about what we know, not what we do. I think secondarily, we put on a lens of comparing ourselves to others. And way back in chapter 10, you might remember Paul uh, addressed this concept with them. Chapter 10, verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding 
This is one of the most common and worst failures of spiritual self-examination. We're always going to be able to find somebody else who seems less than us, which we can then use to our advantage. You know, it may be hard to fly like an eagle when you're with turkeys, <laughs> but you still look like an eagle. Or how about that Capital One commercial where the kids are playing pickup basketball and they pick Charles Barkley first? He's like, I told you. Who's not going to pick the six-foot-tall round mound of rebound to play on their pickup basketball team, right? Uh, I like the, it's like the baseball commercial when uh, it's one of the cell phone companies are breaking in and out, and um, I think it's Giancarlo Stanton is calling Aaron Judge, asking how he helps up his, his hitting, and through the broken language, Giancarlo Stanton starts going to Little League games, crushing home runs. You know, the fact is, if I look hard enough, I try hard enough, I can find somebody who loves people less than I do. I can find somebody that's not as kind. I can find somebody that's not as sacrificial. I can find somebody that's not as committed. I can find somebody that's not as dedicated. I can find somebody so that I look and feel better. Spiritual self-examination is not about comparing ourselves with others. But I think it's the warped way many, many believers do it. And so then what is it? What does healthy spiritual self-examination look like? And I'll give you two truths for that as well. Number one, it's about Christ. It is about Christ. And here we can turn to uh, another text in Scripture that points to this kind of testing. And so if you have your Bibles, you can keep your finger here, but go over to Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, we have this amazing passage and it's again talking about doing life in the community and Paul references this kind of testing as well but we need the context he says in verse 1 brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ now that word burden there is a crushing weight. It's a Greek word that references to a crushing weight upon you, something you could not lift off of yourself. I was joking with some teens this morning, and um, we were talking about bench pressing, and uh, when a guy bench presses, he wants to bench press a lot to prove to other guys he's strong. That's like the big test, like how strong you are, right? But the worst thing you want to do is to be bench pressing, bench press too much without a spotter, and then you're the guy that's like, oh, I'm going to die, right? And, and weights are falling off, and people are running to your rescue, and it's embarrassing. It's a bad moment crushing weight that's what it's talking it's like a crushing weight and this is a crushing weight of sin you can think of it as somebody's working on a car the jack stand slips out under and the car falls upon them it's a weight that is impossible for them to lift and he's calling us into one another's life to help lift that weight of sin it can be a sin habit pattern it can be uh, a sin that you just a terrible sin you've done it could be a routine sin you've done it could be a, a, a sin that we think of as small but did you just consistently keep doing it and it is crushing you and he calls us into one another's life to help them what is that sin and how would we recognize what those sins even look like what do those burdens appear like well if we were to go back one chapter to galatians 5 we have this a list that Paul helps us with. And you will remember that some of these are the same kind of sins that Paul just listed to the Corinthians that we looked at last week. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
And things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Just so you know, that word sorcery there is pharmakia. It references drugs. And so these kinds of crushing sins are present in someone's life. And a person who claims Christ, and they're otherwise we would say they're a believer, and yet we see them being crushed under the weights of the sin, and so he calls spiritual people to go into their life and bless them to help them. They're failing at the law of Christ. And so instead, this is what should be coming out of the life of a believer. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. These are the fruits that Christ says must be in you and are to be in every believer. Now, now you have that verse up there. Just listen. I'll read 2 Peter 1. Remember I asked you, what are the qualities that Peter said should be in you and abounding? For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness, brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is your life filled with the presence and the increasing demonstration of these fruits? That's a good self-examination question. Let me give you another good self-examination question. Where do you lack? Which one of these are your weakest? Where do you need to grow and repent in that area of weak fruit-bearing? A good self-examination question. What are you actually doing to grow in that area? Let's just pick one. Let's pick love, right? If you were to say, if you were to look at that list and say, that's where I struggle the most. I, when I think of how Jesus defines love, so I'm not talking about wishy-washy. I'm not talking about um, eros, uh, Valentine's kind of love. I'm not even talking about phileo kind of brotherly love. I, I'm talking about this agape kind of love others, love strangers and love enemies. And I realize I'm failing that. I'm weak in that. I need to grow in love. And this is what I'm asking. What are you doing to grow there? I'll give you the number one answer most Christians give me. Ready? I'm praying about it. Great. And dot, dot, dot. Are you, are you studying texts of Scripture that talk about it? Have you poured yourself into the story of the Good Samaritan? Have you studied the, the irony of the moment at Simon the Pharisee's house when the woman washes his feet, Jesus' feet, uh, she's a prostitute, she washes, anoints his feet with oil, she washes it, and Simon's judging her, and Jesus tells the story of the two debtors, and he gets to the point, and remember this, who loves more? The one who's been forgiven. Have you poured yourself into that story so that you understand and comprehend with increasing heart affection and gratitude of how much God has forgiven you? Because that, that is what it means to uncork the bottle on growing in love. Because when we have been loved much, we love much. I'm not a very emotional person. Then you're not like Jesus because he was very emotional. I'm just not naturally affectionate. Then you're not like Jesus because he was naturally affectionate. 
Have you picked up How to Love Like Jesus Loves by Richard Phillips based on a sermon series he preached through 1 Corinthians 13? Have you memorized the markers of 1 Corinthians 13 about love? Have you read them on a post-it note, stuck it on your mirror, prayed it as you go to bed at night, made it the first thing you pray for in the morning? I'm asking you this question, my friends. If you were to tell me that love is where I need to grow, pray about it. But I'm telling you, as you pray about it, ask God to seat this deep in your heart to let the Holy Spirit do a work in you and then you pick up your tools and your work ethic and you start going after it to grow. You will not grow by osmosis. Ask God to start pruning you. John 15, he says, those of you that bear fruit, I prune that you might bear more fruit. God, would you do cut whatever it is in my life that needs to be cut out, that robs the energy from bearing fruit of love, would you cut it out of my life? I don't know if I'm ready to pray that yet, Steve. Those are scary prayers. I can own that. But it is about Christ. It's not about comparing yourself to others. Secondarily, it is about stewardship. The first way we take this out of the realm of just our knowledge or comparison with others is we look to Christ. When you're looking to Christ and you look to how Jesus loves... Man, you were just humbled, right? Like, how do I handle this? And you can take any of the other ones, the self-control or the kindness of Christ, the patience of Jesus. We say the patience of Job. How about the patience of Jesus? These fruits, the virtue, the righteousness. When we start looking to Christ, we don't have time to be comparing ourselves to other people. We don't have time to start talking about how much we know because we are humbled before God and what he's doing. And so we take this out of the realm of what we know or comparison with others by looking to Christ. The second is we consider ourselves and what God has done in us and wants to do through us. There are few things, few things in life that will entice us to think that spiritual growth is about what I know in comparison to others than when we're helping other people, right? So here we've got brother overtaken in a fault, overburdened by sin, and we walk into their life, and they need some wisdom, and by God's grace, he's given us some knowledge and some wisdom. So we give some, they need, they need some direction, by God's grace, we, we have some direction for the given. They, they need some hope and some encouragement, by God's grace, we've walked the path. We're not way down the road further than them, we're a couple steps, we, we can help them along. Uh, we see them struggling in a sin pattern that by God's grace and humility, we're not wrestling with. There are a few things that will entice us more to think that we have arrived than doing ministry to others. And so how do we self-examine, and, and should we, when that is what's going on? Well, Galatians, if you're still there, Galatians 6, right on the heels of calling us in to other people's burdens, what does he say? But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. That's an interesting phrase there, isn't it? What does he mean, boast in his own bear his own load. What he's saying is rather than you being confident that you are somehow spiritually mature and you've arrived because you're looking at how farther along you seem to be than this brother, this dear brother or sister that you've come into their life, rather you're recognizing your own burden. That is a completely different word in the Greek when he talks about load and burden. 
The first one was a crushing weight that you could not push off of yourselves. You know what this is? This is a soldier's backpack. It's actually fascinating when you get in and you study it. It's a rucksack that you have to carry and handle your own responsibility. In an army fire team, you have four roles with different kinds of duties and weapons to maximize fire and movement tactics. In this room, sitting here right now this morning, we have widows, singles, teens, marrieds, retirees, business owners, employees, and students. The question is not how well we are doing compared to one another, but how well we are stewarding the gifts, opportunities, and resources we are called to bear. In a fire team, you want your designated marksman to be mobile, well-trained, and calm. And you want that dude carrying the M249 saw to have the beef to lug it and its ammo around so you can throw some lead down rage when you need it. And you don't want those to be the same guy. So imagine as a fire t- army fire team is setting out and the one guy is carrying this heavy M249 saw that can grow thousands of rounds down the range. He's lugging a rucksack with extra ammo. He's carrying arguably the most weight of anybody in the fire team. And then you got this other guy over here, and he is the trained marksman. But the M249 saw guy looks at this and is like, man, he's like, he, he can hike further, and he's like leaping over boulders. And look at that guy. I, I feel bad because I don't feel as agile as he is. I'm just going to leave some of the extra rounds home. Marksman's like, dude, pack some more rounds. I'll stay light and agile. You throw some overwhelming firepower. Everybody's got roles and duties and responsibilities. What Galatians is telling us this is when we're doing ministry with others, it's our temptation to start thinking about spiritual self-examination in comparison to them and their sin struggles and what God's doing in them. And what he's telling us is you need to be thinking about how are you stewarding you? How are you doing you? And when you start asking that in a Christian context, you stop thinking this way. But I am more committed than Bob. I am more invested than Susie. I am growing and changing, and I am not bound in this habitual sin problem like this guy or like that lady. And instead, you start asking, how are you bearing the rucksack, the life, the opportunities, the gifts that God has given you? That's where examination happens. Paul recognizes it in Galatia. He absolutely recognizes it with the Corinthians. Here at the end of Corinthians, I can guarantee you this. There is one way to guarantee that you fail this test. Don't take it. Would you be willing this week to just take one of these texts, Galatians 5, 2 Peter 1, And work down through it asking whether they're really in you, coming out of you. Would you be willing to not just hear Darren or myself call you to stewardship, to examine, examine, how do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? How do I spend my gifts? How do I invest the life that God has given me? But actually do it to ask, are you carrying your burden? Here at the end of Corinthians, I can echo this sentiment this morning. God knows this is the truth. This is not for my sake. This is not to make me feel better as a pastor or as a person or as your brother in Christ or as a friend. I get exactly what Paul is saying here. 
He says, I'm dealing in truth. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We're glad when we're weak and you're strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Spiritual self-examination is the healthy, normal practice for all believers. I'll give you one last reason. I think we, we all tend to avoid tests and quizzes. We're afraid of what they reveal. And so I want to call you then in this closing moment to this truth. The people that are the ultimate failures of the test of faith, the people who have no chance of passing, they, they are overwhelmed by their sin and they are exhausted by life. The same Jesus that caused his children to spiritual self-examination is the same Jesus that looked at those people that have no chance of ever passing the test and he said this, come to me you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. God doesn't call you to spiritual self-examination to put a bunch of red ink on your life. He calls you to spiritual examination to remind you that his blood covers your sin and calls you to a new way. And that's to walk in Jesus. I think the harsh reality is we're surrounded by family and friends who see lacks of Christ in us all the time. It's no shock to them that we're not as much like Jesus as we ought to be. I think what's really going on is we don't want our own hearts to know where we need to grow. But we serve a kind Savior who calls us to that, doesn't he? Not meanly, not angrily, but lovingly and caringly. The biggest threat to my family, to my home, to my life is me. To this church is me. That's why I think that's why we, we have to think that way. And so what I need Jesus to do is to use the power of his spirit, take text like Galatians five and Peter, and be willing to think through it. Maybe you're maybe like, I'm not even sure how to do that quiz. So just do this. Just write it them out. And I would do this right on the side, a scale. It's called a liquor scale, one to five. Five being just like Jesus, one being who I was a year ago. There's your spectrum. Where are you? And wherever you fall weakest, start working on it. You're like, but I don't even know how I'd work on that. Great. Ask some other believers, ask your pastors, and start working on it. That's what I'm calling you to. Spiritual self-examination is the healthy and normal practice for all believers.